Welcome to One American Podcast. We are live tonight to have a very interesting conversation about Nexium and Keith Ranieri. Uh, I'm very excited to have this conversation with uh, two men who I have come to find as friends and been very impressed with uh, interacting with um, periodically over the last year or so, ever since I met Nikki Klein. Some of you may have seen the episode that Nikki and I did together about a year ago. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes, uh, even to this day, that, that we've done. And so what I want to do is, Mark, let's start with you and have you introduce yourself. And then, Eduardo, why don't you introduce yourself um, after that and give us a little context. That's great, Chase. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, yeah, it has been great to get to know you over the last year and a half. I think you've been one of the people who've been willing just to be more more open and more critical, uh, more of a critical thinker with respect to the narrative that's out there. So we appreciate you. Um, you know, have I know for both of us, you know, thank you for having us on. Um, but yes, my, my name is Mark Elliott. I have I've had an, an incredible journey over the last uh, I'm 37 now over the last 37 years. The short of it is I have been an inspirational speaker. I lived with a severe case of Tourette syndrome for about 20 years. Um, and then while I was speaking, I ended up finding the courses uh, called Executive Success Programs, uh, which is one of the companies under the Nexium umbrella. And it was through Nexium and the help of Nancy Solzman and Keith Raniere and an incredible community of people, I was able to overcome my Tourette's uh, completely uh, mind over body. So uh, that was how I was introduced, you know, into uh, Nexium. Uh, and then obviously, uh, you know, as you've uh, and Nikki have talked about, uh, of course, the, you know, the government completely came in and uh, destroyed our community. Our friends were, uh, you know, charged and ultimately, uh, as, as we know, were wrongfully convicted. And so myself and Eduardo uh, and Nikki uh, and uh, other great friends who know Chakravorty uh, and other people we have been, you know, fighting for the last few years to try to expose the injustice uh, that happened in this case with respect to Keith, uh, Claire Bronfman, uh, and the other people. So uh, definitely has been, uh, you know, I've, I guess you could say I've had different phases of what I've been doing in my life. Absolutely. Eduardo, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Chase. Um, I guess... Yes, my name is Eduardo, and I, I figure people know me as a friend of Keith and Allison and one of the owners of The Source and um, one of the people that have been helping trying to expose the injustice, uh, the FBI planting evidence on the case. So I guess we figured with the attention that maybe the vow is having and some of the stuff that's happening with Mark's lawsuit we could maybe bring some attention to the tampering because um, I don't know how much you know about it, Chase, but as we have been filing this scientific uh, evidence that the FBI manipulated those dates that were used to uh, claim child pornography, as, as we file those things, Keith has been retaliated against and is having a really hard time in prison. And, you know, even though we have Alan Dershowitz and Ron Sullivan and, you know, all sorts of people asking for justice, the media has silenced this. So mm. we're hoping that uh, what's happening with Mark and his lawsuit against uh, Lionsgate and our appearance on the bow uh, might get us some attention and we could use that. So uh, I'm grateful that you're giving us this opportunity. You know, it hasn't been easy for us, as you know. Absolutely. Well, I'm sorry that you're um, going through all that you are going through. I do want to provide a little bit of context uh, around me because it's very easy for 
people to dismiss any sort of support for Keith as, um, you know, just a brainwashed cult member thing, right? Oh, the, the course of the Manson family loved Charlie, right? And I just want to say and clarify that I didn't even know what Nexium was until The Vow Season 1 came out. And I watched it, and that's how I thought to reach out to Nikki Klein to come on the the, the podcast. So I am not someone who um, uh, was ever involved in Nexium. I've never met Keith. I've never spoken to Keith. Um, Keith's never sent me an indirect message. He, I don't even know if he knows if I exist. So I'm not like a Keith Ranieri disciple by any means, or you know, I know that's for lack of a better term, not that there are any disciples of Keith Ranieri, right? That's even to imply a religious tone in and of itself. But I am not someone who has been manipulated or, or communicated with in any way by Keith. I, frankly, I don't even know if Keith is a good person or not because I've never met him or interacted with him. But I do know that it's very questionable the manner in which he was convicted and and put in prison and i do know that i respect a lot of people close to him and know people that were close to him that i trust um and so uh, i just wanted to provide that context so people didn't run under the impression that this was you know just a podcast of former members who are still under some sort of a spell or anything that's not what this is this is an honest conversation about what happened how it was covered and and, and what's next uh, in another side of you, right? It's it's not as sexy as the vow, but it should be a counter to sort of some of the narratives that have been that have been spilled. So, Mark, let's let's start with you a little bit. You were you were you were doing motivational speeches, which must have been just brutal for people to listen to, right? Because you were you had Tourette's, <laughs> and that's how you that's how you heard about executive success programs. <laughs> yeah, was, I, I needed help with it. I was. Uh, you know, it was something I didn't imagine I was going to be doing, but it was an incredible opportunity, you know, having, uh, I was able to, you know, turn lemons into lemonade and with my experience with Tourette syndrome, uh, sure. was, I was really just talking about a very basic message of tolerance and compassion and using mm -hmm. the Tourette's to convey, look, you don't really know someone, you know, even though you can make an initial assumptions and you have initial prejudices against people recognize you don't really know the full story, which, you know, funny enough, I think relates a lot to, you know, my experience and Eduardo's experience of what's happened with Nexium. You know, people see, uh, you know, headlines, they see documentaries, and just it's so easy to, to immediately and just instantly believe it because it seems, you know, one, because it's salacious and so it causes you to react or you hear something really negative and so, you know, it, it generates a lot of fear or you feel like, you know, you just get a really bad feeling about it. That's very understandable. It's not like, uh, you know, sometimes I think people think, uh, people think that we don't know the headlines or we haven't heard things and, and sort of, we're sort of immune to it or we're callous because we don't listen to it. You know, we're, I'm still a person. I still hear those things. It's not like I don't hear it. It's just, the question is, is that even after you hear something initially, do you have the ability to question it and critically think, which is imperative if you want to have, you know, be more to have better discourse, to be more civilized. So it's neat how my speaking has sort of come full circle in that way, that message. It's just, you know, first I experienced um, people believing what they knew about my life with Tourette's and now, you know, being associated with Nexium and fighting, fighting for Keith's constitutional rights, trying to help expose the FBI. I'm experiencing it in, in a very different, you know, in just a very different, uh, in different content now. Can you tell me about Tell me the story of the first time that you met Keith, what year it was, and, and what happened. 
The first time I met Keith, I think it was after I was doing a training in Albany. And, mm. you know, at that point I had had so many, I had just done the first five days of the 16 day course. And I had had such uh, amazing realizations about myself, about just, I started to think about a lot of things that I've never thought about before. And I was so impressed with the course, so impressed with the way it was set up. And so I was very excited to meet, you know, one of the, the person that created it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I, um, I think I met him actually it was at volleyball where I met him and uh, he was just very kind and open. And um, I was just, you know, really, really excited and grateful to meet him as I, even just from the first five days before I had beaten Tourette's, I started to have changes in my life that um, were wonderful. And so, and, and just to be clear for the sake of the audience, Keith doesn't actually, didn't actually teach the courses, did he at the end or, or, or had he, had he been lecturing you before you met him or was the course something that was done by a, a teacher or a coach uh, before you met? Do you want to take that one or door? We both can answer. Do you want to take that one or door? Take it. Um, okay. Um, no, you know, I guess the 10 years that I took courses, um, I never had a class taught by Keith. Um, everything that we learned in ESP and the other companies was had been trained for decades for other people. It had been decades since uh, Keith uh, trained anything. Um, some of the videos that are around on the bow and seduced are companies that we were developing later. It was a couple of years before the trial and everything, before everything went down, we were developing new companies and that's where a lot of the videos come from. But uh, key to teaching was something that um, ESP hadn't had for a long time. I mean, all of the teachings were done actually with a template exactly the same with the, each class with Nancy teaching in video. So this yeah. had been the case for a decade. So uh, yeah. I never had a class with Keith until we developed those other companies. Yeah. Well, and that's the reason I wanted to bring that up is because when one thinks of a cult leader, they think of like a Jim Jones or a Charles Manson or somebody like that, who is the sole communicator, you know, for, he's, the, he's the source for lack of a better term, it, it, communicating directly to followers, right? Like, like Jesus didn't really delegate his message until he, you know, died and was resurrected. Right. And so, so it, I think that many people may be surprised to know that this so-called cult, you know, had these programs and these centers all over the place where, where Keith wasn't actually even meeting everyone or he didn't meet all 17,000 people that did the courses. He wasn't actually interacting with everyone. And, you know, it's, it's, it's it seems intuitive to me, at least, that if this was really sort of a, if the intention was really a cult environment, that Keith would have been directly involved with every person that walked through the door, at least in the, in the beginning. I think so it's well said. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so I want to ask you, Mark, what's the deal with you and Lionsgate? Cause I didn't even know that you were involved in a lawsuit against Lionsgate until Eduardo told me a couple of days ago. So obviously, you know, people are aware of the vow that, you know, came out, uh, you know, about Nexium, and there was another documentary that, that was produced. And one of the executive producers was India Oxenberg who, um, you know, people I'm sure know of, you know, her, you know, through the trial and also, you know, her mom was uh, very famous about going out, doing a whole public campaign about that her daughter was somehow stuck in a, in a cult. Uh, Catherine Oxenberg sort of, uh, was her name. And so they produced a documentary called Seduced uh, that was about India's experience in Nexium. 
and it came out in October of 2020. And after I watched it, I noticed, basically I watched it and I had this really bad feeling because I saw that I was in it, which shocked me by the way, because you know, one, I'm, well, one, the documentary is, in my experience, a very negative documentary. You know, it's about her negative experience of Nexium and how it, uh, you know, it has changed over time for her. And so, anyways, I watched it, and when I went back through with a fine, with a you know a fine tooth comb, um, it was very clear that it was deliberate with how they portrayed me in the documentary. There's different scenes in it where. Um, they've spliced and fabricated scenes together. They literally took a testimonial that I did for a completely different company, for a whole company on, uh, it's called Jeunesse, for men and women, and made it appear that I'm giving a testimonial for another company called SOP. To make it even worse, though, the thing that they made it seem like I was supporting was audio from Keith that was spliced together. So it wasn't even one coherent sentence from Keith. It was multiple sentences spliced together that, mm. uh, yeah, where Keith was talking about the, the primitive aspects of men's uh, sexuality and the, the often negative aspects of it. And he's giving a whole course that was only for men talking that men need to become aware of these, of, of that aspect of themselves. If they don't, mm. and if you as a man suppress it, you actually can become more violent towards women. So of course, as you can imagine, a lot of that can be taken out of context. So they took some of that audio, spliced it together, and then they put a testimonial where, where literally he's, you know, saying this really sort of uh, out of context, salacious kind of thing. Context. And then it cuts to my face saying, this is the best education about women. No one has ever taught us how to relate to women like this. This is, quote, the Harvard of how to relate to women. Wow. So let, I want to, I want to, I want to show this clip and get your feedback on it that we, uh, that we prepared. Um, I'm going to go now, ahead and fire it up. This is a different one, just so you know, this is okay. a, a different, just sure. so people know what they're watching is, is that there was another course called the ethicist that um, uh, was all about uh, ethics, about principles. And so there was a lot of movies that were shown in there um, about, you know, famous people like Gandhi and different and uh, other people like that. But in it, they what they did is, is that they spliced footage together to make it appear that Keith is basically giving me instructions or telling me it's okay to go kill people. And uh, right. as we, we can discuss it afterwards of how they spliced yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Everything in the group became how much are you willing to do for Keith Ranieri? And Keith Ranieri was teaching a philosophy that the ends justify the means. If we lie, but our goal is to save the world, isn't that justified? You can understand killing when you feel it is necessary. So here you have these women, and let's suppose these women are representative to you of a gang that's killing your family, and that you feel that if you don't do this, your family's gonna die, or people you know are gonna die. So you feel they must die. So was that even the same event? So what's interesting is it's great that Eduardo is here because what they were actually showing was uh, that's footage from uh, a class from the source. Eduardo, could you share just a little bit about the source? Yeah. So um, the source is an acting curriculum and um, one of the things that it teaches is, um, you know, being able to talk about the things that are maybe perceived as the worst things in humanity. 
and people were sharing videos. Interestingly enough, the video that Keith is talking about in that segment is a video that Mark Vicente provided where there's something really awful being done to some Mexican women. It's a video that was uploaded by cartels in Mexico. I don't even, I'm not even going to say what it is that's being done to these women, but it's pretty awful. Mark Vicente submitted it to the class and we're discussing it, you know, and, uh, you know, we're talking about the concept of um, as an actor, how do you go and try on so that you can act like it? How do you try on something that it's so awful, so Mm. rejected? How would you portray the guitar member, cartel members in this scene? So that it actually comes across as you know a, a real a true performance, genuine. Uh, right. uh, when 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 internally you're so fundamentally averse to everything they're doing in the scene. Right. So it's not only that it's hard to go and act it, and forget about acting and acting it fluidly, you know, like a good actor, but even going and thinking about it or having a discussion about it, it's difficult. So the curriculum dealt with that. Um, Seduced used a lot of a, you know, a video where we discussed, um, you know, someone who abuses children, which is, uh, uh, you know, most actors have a a hard time approaching any of that or playing anything of that. I think it was um, Keith Sutherland who played, I don't know if you know, uh, A Time to Kill. It was a movie with Matthew McConaughey Mm. and Samuel Jackson long ago. He plays actually... He does a good job, I believe, of someone who abuses a child, and he does it for like the worst reasons, for like right. hate towards the race. Um, a time to kill is the name of the movie, and and you know he does a great job, and it's really difficult. Most actors, even like the ones that are like good, good actors, can't go and even try that on, let alone play it play it well. So all these different things we explored in that class, and we talked about how can we even discuss it so that we can uh, play it. And in Seduced and even in The Vow a little bit, they go and they show it as if these were conversations with Keith where he's telling us, go and do this thing. It's, uh, you know, clearly meant to be distorted. If you watch the class, which I sent to you, the whole Mm -hmm. class is only about that, trying on different things, different things that are difficult for people to try on, and that's it. And the slices of Seduced and some of it even in The Vow are meant to make it look like he's instructing negative things, not talking about negative characters. Does that make sense? Right, right. It, it's and they make it sound like he's he's telling you to to be this way or do this thing, but he's yeah. actually just trying to help you learn as an actor how to portray or uh, this this character in a performance. And ironically, you know, this company had as a founding principle to teach people how to act by actually creating more empathy for the thing that you're trying to play. In other words, right. what the hope was, was that people would create more compassion against even those dark aspects of humanity. So it's a thing that if you go and look at the dozens, hundreds of testimonials, including Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Ames and all those people, if you when they interview them about the curriculum, they say that. You know, this is the thing that not only do I feel like a better actor, I'm having better results, the most compassion. Mark Vicente used to sell it like that. You know, this is the most compassion I've ever built. So it was a company that it meant to talk about difficult things so that you could play them, be successful with them, and also you develop compassion with those dark aspects of humanity. So it was the opposite exactly of what Seduced and the Vow portrayed. Yeah. What makes it what makes it worse, Chase, is, is that so here what Eduardo is describing is, is that you have a scene where he's actually talking about building compassion. 
And that's from right. a curriculum company called The Source. But in the beginning of the, of the clip that you just saw, they're talking about a completely different course, course called The Ethicist, where people where we explore things about ethics and about principles and about you know having conversations about why do people die for a principle? It's not Keith telling people, go die for a principle. It's looking right. at why, you know, like this incredible um, human study about people like Gandhi, people like Martin Luther King. Why do people live such principled lives? So obviously, you know, things could be taken out of context there. So they show clips from that course, and then they somehow show from a completely different course this conversation about, you know, these women who are being murdered. But it's a completely different course, which means these editors, uh, you know, would have had to gone through hundreds and hundreds of hours to try to find a very specific clip where he might be talking about something that could relate to a completely different course and then put them together. And then, of course, you know, where you have, you know, Keith is saying they must die. They make it appear that that I'm the one speaking to him. If you look at the raw footage, it's actually Eduardo was asking Keith a question, uh, you know, about right. some of this, and this right. is where this came up. And then so he they, was telling Eduardo to kill somebody. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. so let me let me ask you this. Right, right. So so what is what? What is the lawsuit with Lionsgate? Are you, are you, is it a defamation issue? It's a, uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's a defamation. And I don't want to go too deep into it just because obviously it's still going on. Yeah, but pending. It's, yeah. It's, a, it's a defamation lawsuit, you know, for how they portrayed me. I filed it a year ago and just this past Friday, it was incredible. I had my first opportunity to go in front of a federal judge in Riverside, California, um, you know, to see whether or not this, you know, moves forward. If it gets past, it's called an anti-slap motion regarding the First Amendment. Uh, or if it's dismissed. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's been a long journey. You know, it's, this came out two years ago, um, but I'm incredibly excited just to be able to, you know, to show people this is, you know, if you're going to call yourself a documentary, then be a documentary that shows truth, that shows facts. And, uh, you know, in this case, here we have the direct evidence to show that this was manipulated and manipulated in a very specific way, um, you know, with the intent to harm. Um, you know, India is someone that knew me. I've known India for, you know, Eduardo and I knew India so well. This isn't like she's a stranger to us. She knew about my life with the Tourette's and what had happened. She knows about Eduardo, about his passion for acting, about his family. I mean, th this this isn't a stranger. This was done specifically, um, you know, the, I, I think, you know, for myself or Eduardo, you know, it's, we've, we've taken, uh, unfortunately, it's been an unpopular position to fight for the injustices with respect to the prosecution, with respect to the FBI. Um, and so I think the fact that we're still out there saying, hey, look, Nexium is a wonderful thing. You know, it's an incredible thing. And particularly with the Tourette syndrome, which is absolutely antithetical that Nexium hurts people, um, people don't want that out there. You know, 17,000 people took this course. I don't think people even can wrap their head around this. This international supposed sex cult that, you know, sex traffics and has forced all these horrible things all around the world. In one of the biggest criminal cases in the last decade in the Eastern District of New York, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eduardo, there is two, two current students of Nexium that claimed a crime happened. You know, two out of 17,000 that was, I mean, it's it, it's like hard to really understand the level of exaggeration that has taken place here. Something, you know, Nexium was in 
multiple countries. It had reached billionaires, entrepreneurs, presidential families, all the way down to nannies, to uh, to babysitters, to uh, attorneys, to bartenders, um, all walks of life, multi, you know, all kinds of religions, all kinds of races, all kinds of ethnicities. I mean, it's to to think. Um, of, of how it's been blown out of proportion is hard for people to grasp. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. think it's clear why they wanted to go after people like me, why they've continued to go after people like Eduardo um, is we are, we're saying something that goes very against the narrative. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that's interesting to me about Keith is, you know, if you look at like a, a Harvey Weinstein who is accused of sex crimes, you don't, I can I can name someone or identify a face of a single person who's come out publicly and just just defiantly fighting for Harvey Weinstein, right? Like the guy did it, got convicted, went away. Nobody's like fighting for that guy, right? It's almost like he didn't have any true friends. Uh, perhaps you know he had a lot of colleagues in a major network, but not necessarily a lot of true sort of loyal friends. And the thing that's so fascinating to me about Keith is not only that in the face of this conviction, he's had so many people fight for him, but were I to go to prison for something, I don't know that I would have so many people fight for me, right? Like publicly just not give up, right? Like you see Julian Assange, he's got a, he's got a crowd, you know, that definitely fights for him. And I, I think it it's an indicator that this person, Keith, has really had a positive impact on at least some lives to the extent that strangers, not blood, not family, but just, you know, people that he's worked with, whether briefly or, or for an extended period of time, are willing to really dedicate a substantial portion of their lives to, uh, to, to tell the other side of the story. Why do you think it is that so many like you you guys and, and, and Nikki and others are just determined to make this right. Um, I think there's different reasons. I think, I mean, very simply, if you take most of the people that you named, these were people that literally, they were working in the companies you described and they were getting paychecks by that companies paying the rent and those companies were suddenly defamed and destroyed, and then there's that. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's also these are people that you like Claire and Keith. You're interacting with them every day. Uh, even the people that are the accusers, you see them every day. And then these incredible things come out in the media, and they get to the court, and just a complete distorted thing. You, I understand that for you the information came from what the media was saying, but for us sure. is this sudden change, the opposite of what you've seen is out there in the media. You're involved, you know the truth and it's difficult to escape, you know? Um, and so we're very personally involved in what's going on. And it, it's a, it's not that people that Keith has a lot of people that are close to him. Is this is that this was a community of people? I mean, there was dozens, literally, of companies, successful. Some of them, you know, millionaire companies, uh, executive boards, and people communities. Um, it's it's rare to find a group of companies that have also a community that runs them. And this has happened for two decades. So 
there's a lot of people involved because this is some sort of a family problem thing going on very yeah. simply. And also there's the fact that, you know, you you witness an injustice, it sort of wakes you up to what's happening and you can't just let it go. I mean, it's um, it, it's uh, it's alarming. People think that it's a lie or whatever, but once you see that really the government is framing their people and sending innocent people to jail, you can't let that go. You shouldn't. No citizen should let that go. It's crazy to let it go. Hmm. The the other thing you said, Chase, is that we are not, well, I guess we, myself, we are not loyal to Keith blindly. You know, I think that's what people think somehow, particularly in my case, you know, because it's so clear with Tourette's. Oh, because he helped you with Tourette's, that's why you're helping him. You know, which implies that because somebody helped me in my life, I have the inability to critically think or hold them accountable is basically what they're saying. People right. don't realize, too, when I was born, I had a create a horrible birth defect where I, most of my intestines were removed. I had an incredible surgeon. Her name's Dr. Turnberg. That woman literally saved my life. Seven operations. It's, it's a true miracle. I am incredibly indebted to her. I am grateful for what she did. However, I'm still, you know, an adult, you know, I grew up, I became an adult. If she did something bad, I could hold her accountable and still be grateful for her saving my life. There's no difference with respect to Keith. He created a curriculum that profoundly helped me and I will forever be grateful. Now, I know that he's innocent, but even if I thought he did something, I could still hold him accountable for that and be grateful. If mm. what Eduardo is describing, though, is, is that if people are willing to just take a moment to just blow away all the prejudice and all the hate and start to have a more rational conversation about the facts and about the evidence, it becomes very clear very quickly that something is very, very wrong here. You know, when people people have accused Eduardo, myself, Nikki, Sunil, other people, that somehow we support someone who is a sex trafficker, how could we possibly do that? I mean, from the outside, yes. From an initial, you know, sort of like what I was talking about with the Tourette's, from like an, initially seeing that, that someone's charged with sex trafficking and convicted, and now you have people supporting them, it's very natural that you think these people support sex trafficking. You know, a sex trafficker, just from an initial impulse, but when you start to look at the facts, this is a this this charge of sex trafficking is unprecedented in in U.S. history. You have a case where you have a single female who was who um, received oral sex from one other female, and no money was exchanged. And Keith Raniere was charged for sex trafficking, was I think sentenced to it was twenty or forty years, and now somehow Nexium is a sex trafficking organization. Right. Right. It would be like if uh, Jeff Bezos were accused of sex trafficking and they tore down Amazon over it. It's like, what does yeah, that have to do? Again, right. uh, so it's it's not that we are loyal to Keith Raniere. I think ultimately the, the beautiful thing about the course is that it taught people how to have integrity, how to uh, live, you know, develop a sense of your own ethics, develop a sense of principles for yourself. And what Eduardo had said is, is that, you know, here we are, we're living, we were all an incredible community living our lives and we saw in front of our in front of our face the US government in completely terrorizing an organization where here you had you know they made a, a nonviolent community a uh, uh, they brought RICO charges which is the charges that they bring to uh, uh, you know uh, the, the the mob and so 
I know myself and Eduardo and our friends, we've been fighting because the reality is our friends were, uh, you know, what, what do you do when your friends are being beat up right in front of you? Do you just walk away? Mm -hmm. And even if you're not strong enough to jump in the fight, you call the police, you do something to help. And so that's what we've been trying to do. And luckily, as we've been fighting over the years, more and more people have been seeing the injustice. And Eduardo had talked about in the beginning, we now have uh, to, you know, to a scientific uh, certainty evidence that there was uh, that the FBI tampered with evidence regarding the child pornography, uh, which will, you know, which is, uh, which, you know, in a sense is basically the FBI planted child pornography on Keith Raniere to convict him. Yeah. So before you have to hop off the call, there's two things I want to do. I want to ask you a little bit about the, um, the Tourette situation specifically. And I want to also show that, um, that compilation video that we used with the, uh, and during the press conference as well, uh, and get a couple of your, your thoughts on that. Um, uh, regarding the Tourette's thing, one of the things that's interesting is that there's kind of several different angles that this gets, that this gets attacked. One angle is like you mentioned, Oh, because he helped you, then, you know, you're helping him. Uh, and, the other angle is, oh, you never really had Tourette's. You just faked it, right? And I heard, though I haven't noticed any disclaimer, maybe the third episode tonight has a disclaimer where they where they sort of discredit um, that there's any sort of alternative solution for Tourette's. Uh, I, I can't remember where I read it, but I read that um, there was going to be like a disclaimer at the beginning of an episode about the efficacy of this, of Nexium or ESP's treatment. Uh, uh, regarding Tourette's, but at the same token, I believe in the first season of The Vow, and I could be mistaken in my memory, but I believe that Sarah Edmondson was fairly explicit, stating that no, the Tourette's was legit. Like you know, Keith's the shithead, but he cured Tourette's for sure. <laughs> you know, that that was sort of her stance, if I remember correctly, from season one. So, can you talk a little bit about what that therapy, that talk therapy, was that you went through, uh, and and the legitimate efficacy, to sort of uh, counter the the mm -hmm. skepticism around that story? So there's a lot there. Just a couple quick things. First off, Nexium never claimed that we were curing people of Tourette's syndrome. Never once. Okay. Here, Pardon you know, me. Pardon me for no, being no, presumptuous so about know, that. But just so you know, they have said that nowhere when I was going through it, Keith never said that. Nancy never said that. That was not something we promoted, even with the documentary. What's clear is, is that the, the, the technology, when I say a technology, it's not a machine. But the conversations of questions and philosophical inquiry to help someone build so more self-awareness about themselves that Keith uh, had created with Nancy, it's through that exploration, it seems that there was a profound impact on some people with Tourette syndrome. Some people, you know, we only had, had had 12 people go through it, or maybe it was 11 people go through it. So we weren't making any grandiose claims about everyone with Tourette syndrome. It was a very specific interview process that people went through and we only could help people that people wanted to be helped. Do I know this could help everyone with Tourette's in the world? I don't know. Do I think it could help a lot of people? Absolutely. You know, there's no question about that. What was very different about it, just to sort of zoom out, is most uh, uh, treatments for Tourette syndrome deal with the effects. You know, it deals with, you know, the, the ticking aspect, the fact that, um, you know, I have this really uncomfortable itch and I don't know what to do with it. So medication makes the itch go away. When I went through ESP, executive success programs, through, through the questions and the classes and learning about fear and about anxiety and about anger and about, uh, you know, emotional reactions that I have, what I found out is, is that my Tourette's for me was way more emotional and psychological than it was physiological.
And when I started to go on that journey of just being willing to question, because before ESP, I didn't even know that that was a question. Just by the question alone, did I go on a journey that now I can you know, be on a podcast with you and no one would ever know that I lived a day with Tourette syndrome. It's, mm. it's something that I believe was on the cutting edge of, of, uh, of psychology and helping neurological disorders around the world. People, you know, people with neurological disorders around the world. And, um, you know, hopefully when we expose, when we expose this injustice and, and people see what was done to the Nexium community and to Keith and to Claire and to Nancy and to all these people, you know, one day we, we will again help people with Tourette syndrome um, and, and many other things out there in the world. Um, so I know that's a lot in short, it's, there's a lot that I could talk about with the Tourette's, but it's, it was something that um, I know for me, I had never, never experienced a set of tools like that that could help me have this type of breakthrough and, and so quickly. Right. And ironically, it ruined your speaking career. So the next thing I want to, I'm just kidding. The next thing I wanted to uh, um, ask you about, just I, I know that you're tight on time. So I want to show this clip and see if we can get a, a thought from you, Mark, before you have to go on it. And then uh, uh, we'll take it from there. Is that okay? Do you have a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Very good. I worked in the FBI for about 10 years. It is clear that the photos in this case were planted there. This is the most serious tampering of evidence that I've ever seen. It's inescapable that the FBI proactively created fake evidence. Data changed while I was in FBI custody. Uh, it was modified, it was altered. In 25 years of digital forensic investigations, five of which was with the FBI, the amount of technical ability and premeditation to perform this fraud in the case against Mr. Ranieri, I've never seen anything like that. In my 20 years experience with the FBI, I have never seen data manipulation, evidence tampering, anything like this on this scale. When I first read the papers that Mr. Ranieri uh, presented on tampering, I was shocked. I've never seen an instance where the system threw away its credibility purely for the purpose of convicting uh, a defendant. If it could happen to a person who is educated, who is white, who has the complexion for acceptance, as I would say, none of us are safe. There's no need to fabricate evidence for a guilty man. The fact that they fabricated evidence here and to the degree that they did shocks the conscience. If this alleged FBI malfeasance turns out to be true, as our experts say it is, then this is really historic. This is really an attempt to frame somebody based on manipulation of data. That's just unacceptable in an American court and in the American legal system. I'm the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Arkansas. In the face of this alarming evidence, there's really no excuse for the court or for the prosecutor to hide behind procedural delays and waiting to get to the bottom of this. They should take immediate action. And if they can't or they won't, the United States Attorney General should appoint an independent prosecutor. If an independent investigation determines this tampering occurred, there must be accountability. People have to be criminally prosecuted. This is very serious.
Okay. So, um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say, and before I hop off, I would love to know your thoughts, Chase. So, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, I don't know if Keith is a good person or not. But, and I don't know if he's guilty of the other crimes that he was convicted of. I don't know if there was actually racketeering. I don't know if there was actually illegal use of credit cards of people or identity theft. I don't know. I haven't looked at that. But I am of the traditional American belief that a person is innocent until proven guilty. And if the government in the process of prosecuting a crime makes one mistake, then you just have to give the defendant the benefit of the doubt. So I, I am adamantly opposed to his, his imprisonment at this time, um, regardless of whether he's even guilty of the other crimes, because that evidence right there that the FBI planted information, that shows that we have a, a, a much greater villain than Keith Ranieri as an individual could ever be in the FBI itself. And frankly, I read um, Rick Ross's book on cults, which was a fascinating book. And when he describes the, the characteristics of a cult, I think there's like 10 items. Everything that he said that characterized a cult could be used to describe the FBI. Right. Are you asked to follow orders without question? Like, I mean, it's like it's like basic stuff. And so it's like so ironic to me that there's this there's this, you know, antagonism toward Nexium and all of its members and its leader coming from these institutions that have actually committed the crimes on mass scales. Like, like you think the CIA has never been engaged in human trafficking or racketeering or, 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 or doesn't use child pornography to frame people. Like, come on, like these people are actually guilty of what, of what they put Keith away from. So, so just, just the fact that the evidence was tampered with is enough for me to adamantly impose his imprisonment. That's, that's my take on this. I, there's not a lot to say after that. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more in the sense of um, the, uh, Richard, uh, Judge Mays, who was one of the people in the video, um, uh, in his interview, um, you know, he, he said to us one time, you know, when a defendant commits a crime, they impeach themselves. But the people that committed this crime, they impeach the system. Mm hmm. You know, and that's, yeah. a, that's a far greater crime than any crime a civilian could commit. Now, in this case, again, we know that Keith Murray didn't even commit that crime. But even if that was the case or someone believes that, you know, do we want to live in a society where we allow the government to commit crimes to convict somebody? And that's a question that I never had, you know, wasn't even thinking about before all this happened. And, uh, you know, but now it's been put in front of me. And I uh, See, you know, one of the reasons we're fighting so hard is this is an incredible opportunity to really expose that this happens in the justice system. It's not the first time it happened for sure, but because this case is so big, it could be the last time. Well, Mark, it was an honor and a pleasure to have you on One American That's Podcast. Great. I hope you'll come back uh, and spend more time with us. I know you have to get going, but I'm looking forward to uh, the next uh, uh, hour or so with, with Eduardo. That's great. Thanks so much, Chase. Thanks so much, Eduardo. You're welcome. Thank Take you, care, Mark. man. Bye, guys. All right, Eduardo, how did you get involved with ESP, Nexium, Keith Ranieri? I want to hear the story about how you met him. Um, I took the personal development program that they offered in Monterrey. This was um, probably like more than 16, 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, like most people, you know, I was invited by a friend. Um, you know, I, I heard about it. And I asked my friend and he directed me to someone and 
you know, I loved it. So um, I kept kept taking the courses and uh, became a teacher of it. Um, and here we are. Yeah. So what was the process like to become a teacher and what made you decide to invest that time in it? Were, were you actually looking for, for, for new employment? Was it like a, was it sort of a job career decision or was, was there something that changed in you that inspired you to um, get more involved? Um, I think it had a lot of the things that I liked, you know, I've always liked teaching and I was doing acting at the same time. Um, and I liked teaching and, even more than teaching acting, I liked the the notion of teaching people how to be more aware so that they could better at, be better at their sport or at their art. Um, it had a lot of things that I liked. And also all of the companies of Nexium had uh, a philosophy that seemed to uh, align with mine, you know, like to um, be compassionate and like ethical and all those things that, you know, we like. So it was more like... Um, something that I encountered and it fit with what I thought. What did you think of Keith the first time that you met him? Um, it was interesting, you know, because the Monterrey Center of ESP has a lot of, um, um, you know, entrepreneurs and people who are like professionists or people who went to a good college. It's more of a, um, you know, because of the courses, they're not, you know, very inexpensive so people right who are more entrepreneurs in mexico are the really the market that takes them so it was very elegant and uh, really a nice place and with for people that were like an elite so i would imagine that kid was this like i knew he was a scientist and a philosopher and a very success a very successful entrepreneur so i sort of thought he would be you know, wearing a suit and a tie and very formal and very like um, closed or I don't know. And then mm -hmm. when I met him, I didn't even know it was him. You know, it was in one of the corporate retreats and we were around the front desk and it was, he was like a guy joking with people and had long hair. He was wearing shorts and he was like being funny and I didn't even know it was him. So I liked him when I met him. And then when I realized it was him, I was like, oh, wow, I guess he's not like I imagined. Yeah. So how did you get to know him on a deeper level to the point where you were actually involved in creating a substantial branch of the sort of ESP corporation? So what happened was that um, I took a five day uh, for personal reasons. I wanted to do something, you know, I was struggling with personal relationships or whatever, just like um, I wanted you got to have a relationship. Huh? You get dumped? Yeah. Like I wanted, I wanted to have a better relationship with my girlfriend. But then I took the course and it helped me with that. And it also sort of like, I started questioning a lot of things. And, you know, I, I realized that I wanted to be an actor, that I had been wanting to be an actor for a long time and that I had convinced myself that I couldn't do it, but maybe I could. So I used all of the stuff that I was learning and I went back to acting and I went back to theater and I ended up. Uh, being admitted in like an amazing conservatory in New York with Mike Nichols, you know, where he was my teacher and Philip Zimmer Hoffman was my teacher. There was just like 30 people out of hundreds that applied. I ended up being admitted into an amazing acting program. And because of the stuff that I learned in ESP, not only I was admitted, I was doing really well. I graduated, I got an agent and I really 
it was amazing. I, you know, I knew that there was a relationship between self-awareness and all these things and art, you know, and somebody being able to perform well in art or in athletics and self-awareness were related. I, I didn't know exactly how, but I, I, I knew it were related. And then, so at some point, Keith started developing with Allison an acting company that showed that, you know, the relationship between self-awareness and acting well. And I was like, I want in on that because that had been my experience, you know, that I used very few tools that I learned in ESP to get an acting career and I used it for years. So when that company came about, I wanted to be a part of it. And I ended up getting to know Keith very well and partnering with him. So. So what was it specifically? Because it's it's hard. It's hard to see. I mean, you can kind of see if you're if you, if you're really paying attention what was going on in ESP that was actually the curriculum. But it, the struggle is that so much of the content around Nexium is, is negative press. So there's, right. there's not a lot of discussion around the specifics of why it was so successful because it was there. 17,000 people don't take five days off of work and pay thousands of dollars. If something doesn't work, maybe they do for like the first round, but if you fail, like then it doesn't work. So what was it specifically in the curriculum uh, that actually impacted you and, and changed your perspective so that you were, you were affecting change think, in your life? I think that it had an approach to self-awareness that was not mystical at all. In other mm. words, anything else that involves self-awareness um, had some sort of uninformed mystical aspect to it. You know, even if you go to a class of yoga, which clearly makes you more self-aware, at least of your muscles and stuff, you right. know, it's hard to go and reproduce a result in something in your life that you're struggling with to do it quickly. That's hard. And in ESP, you, you would have this approach to observing your decision-making process and your thoughts and your emotions and your, your sensations, your body, you know, like Mark, that was very much... Um, very measurable it was like basically okay so this self-awareness you're experiencing how is it measuring your results and how is it making you better with the things that you wanted so it was a perfect blend between something that's perceived as mystical and something very measurable which is like goal setting so people got very good results and also got a, a great experience of themselves so it was, and it was that that's what it was for me personally. I've never been, you know, very mystical, very religious. And I, I never did any personal growth before ESP. But when I took it, 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 it was about self-awareness, but it was giving me all the things that I wanted in my life. Mm, so that makes, that makes sense. Had you done any other similar type not at all. workshops or programs so this is never, your sort of I first never, experience to compare with tony robbins or landmark yeah. or this or that i can't you know i don't know yeah but people who had done all of those who were part of esp would always say you know it's um it's better it's it has much more introspection and it's more deep it's more about the person and you know that, that was very across the board so and i mean Think about why, why would someone, you know, people think we're crazy and that we're lying, that the FBI did not plan child pornography. Why would Keith be a good man that was railroaded? But think about something like that. You know, Mark um, went through his Tourette's, through talk therapy, through self-development courses. And there's thousands of people that like have described amazing results. There's this industry of 
medicine, of victimization, of all sorts of, you know, um, this is what ESP was a model of. Even if it was just a, a little like glimpse of what it could do, that's not something that went with the status quo at all. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I really want to get into your story because there's not a lot of expert people can write off because I spoke with Nikki Klein and like I said, she was just an incredible guest. I thought she was incredibly articulate. She spent an extensive amount of time with me on that episode, which I thought was incredibly gracious, but people can try, though I don't think this is the case at all. They can try to write off Nikki's support for, for Keith as someone who was in a romantic relationship with him. Like, Oh, it's just, you know, right. But, I mean, I, I'm not aware of a romantic relationship between you and Keith Eduardo. Um, so what I really want to do, my, my goal, like with the rest of our time, if that's okay with you, is to, to really hear your human story behind your, your dive into working with, with, with this company and what your experience was like during the unraveling. So obviously Mark Vicente has been, um, you know, a really big part of the vow. Uh, he's in all, every episode extensively. He does um, uh, a, a podcast after every new episode of, the, of this new series. And I watched the one that he did after episode two uh, of the vow. And he actually talked about you quite a bit. Did you get a chance to watch it, Eduardo? I did. I just, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that he brought up was, you know, how he felt uh, very close to you. And obviously you guys are on opposite sides of the coin now what was it like for you to see like people that were your closest friends sort of there's like a civil war going on and, you, and you're you're losing you're losing people that you lean on in your life well what was that experience when did you know that things were going to change between you and mark and i'm not trying to throw mark under the bus at all during the during this conversation or defame him or, no, or no, insult no, him or anything like that so i, I just yeah i just i I just want to talk about that uh, as someone who was so close to him. Tell me about that experience. Well, you know, um, one of the things that the vow left out is that Mark was going around offering uh, um, this non-disclosure contract to people, this NDA um, that was very unlawful. He was, you know, the vow makes it sound like he was calling me as a friend. And in a way he was, and we were friends, but what he did was, um, you know, very bad. He had this NDA uh, that he had people signed. You know, he would say, and he said to me and to Nipi, they don't play that part, but he said, you know, I'm, you're going to hear that the reason why I'm leaving is because I'm going to make movies and other projects and all of that. But really, there's something going on that I can tell you about, but you need to sign an NDA to hear about it. So imagine, this is like a, a person on the board of directors, uh, a person you admired, a friend that has been, you know... So he tried to collateralize you? It was collateral. If you tell anybody about this, then I'll sue you because this he literally did collateral. Right. Well, yes. Which is the DOS so, criticism, right? <laughs> this, so this contract was a I've signed NDAs in my life. This was a peculiar NDA because one of the things it said was that 
you couldn't discuss the content that Mark was going to share with you in this call, but you couldn't also disclose the existence of the contract itself. And I was oh. very shocked that, you know, I've never had a contract like that. And let alone that my friend was offering it to me. It was very um, suspicious. Something felt wrong about it. And then later I realized what it was. It's what you just said. It's a bullying tool. In other words, it's saying, I'm going to tell you all these bad things about people that I've been saying good things about for a decade and that are your friends. And the company that you and I work for, I'm going to say horrible things about them. And if you agree with me, you come in this character assassination campaign and we do all these things. If you don't, you can't talk about what I just told you. Right, right. I see. So he gave me this contract and, you know, I... I was having my wedding in Mexico when he made when when he gave me that and you know Nipi was acting very erratic he was very afraid very angry he was saying you have to sign this thing you have to do what Mark has to say so I did it um in the wedding in my my weekend of my wedding in Mexico I signed it I had a call with him where he told me you know that all these women were being you know uh, coerced into a sex ring that uh, that Sarah had a brand that India had a brand a brand that that Keith really has was a sociopath that all his companies were bad you know he sounded as schizophrenic he was like you know people are trying to kill me I was like Mark who's trying to kill you you know we we were just that what is this like he was uh you know people are following me he sounded completely he was a different person and Ultimately, I listened to him and he was like, would you join me? You know, we're going to go and do this whole media thing with India's mom. And we're going to like make it look like she's being saved by her. And I was like, Mark, Nipi, you guys are describing a character assassination campaign. Not only am I going to join it, but I urge you to stop this. This is going to hurt a lot of people. They were convinced that it was the right thing to do. You know, and mm. they went on the Frank report and started writing lies about. I witnessed Nipi write lies about it, and you know, they were defaming people in the company and the company itself. And they say it in the vow. The excuse they use is because we wanted to uh, bring them away from the cult. So um, what I did is, you know, I told them, listen. If you were telling me that there are women being branded, like, you know, handcuffed and branded with an iron thing and abused. I come from Mexico. If that's going on, you go towards that place. You don't go away from it and blog about it. So I'm going to go to Albany. I'm going to fly and I'm going to talk to everyone involved. And I did. I talked to Keith. I talked to Allison. I talked to Lauren. I talked to Nikki. I talked to everyone. And I found out about DOS. And I went and I told Mark and Nipi repeatedly, I said, listen, there is this sorority, they have a secret thing, but it's a good thing. It's not even, let alone criminal or, or bad. It seems to be a good thing. I told them, what you're going to go and put out there in the world, it's a big line. You're going to hurt a lot of innocent people. You should come and talk to Allison and Keith. There is an explanation to what you're seeing. The brand that Sarah told you is this abuse thing. It's a sorority that she chose to be in. You're misinformed. They never came back to Albany. They never talked to anyone involved. They went on and they spread this fake narrative until it got to the New York Times and thereby to Moira and the FBI. Mm. So I'm going to share with you how Mark seems to me based off of the internet HBO content that I've consumed. And I'd really 
appreciate your feedback as someone who actually knows them, whether or not my interpretation is you think is correct. Because I'm curious as to getting to getting to the bottom of why this schism, for lack of a better term, happened. So I just want to try that. Okay. So sure. Mark seems to me like an incredibly kind, talented, intelligent, and compassionate person who whether he is correct or not does actually believe his current position absolutely and, he thinks he's right, doing a good thing so he's not lying he thinks he's right no. that's that right yes. that's what i'm trying to kind of distinguish and yes, so absolutely. he out of a sense of responsibility for the the people he perceives as victims because of his involvement in the organization yes. so feels a moral mind, duty to rectify the, the situation right right so he went and he defamed and slandered knowingly the source my income of money and but he thinks it was for my own good how much did you make you know it wasn't a lot but it was a few thousand it was it was well it was a company it was a startup we were starting yeah. but it paid my rent and my livelihood you know like and yeah. he destroyed it but he believes, as you're saying, that it was to help us away from the call. It was a good, it was good with good intent. When was the last time that you actually spoke with him? That, uh, you know, I had a call with him where, where I urged him to come back. And I said, frankly, you know, you sound schizophrenic. The thing you're saying and that you're going to take to the media and the courts is not true. Um, that was long ago, years ago. Um, 2017, then, probably. 17. And then... At the trial around 2019, 20, um, he approached me on the, I was online for the trial and, you know, he said that he loved me and he understood that I was being like faithful to Keith and he was there where I am once and, uh, but he loved me deeply. He probably does. Yeah. I mean, whatever. It's an explanation, not a justification for what he did, just an explanation, but you know, people. Yeah, people but you know, the people so. that he always claimed to love, he went on and slandered and destroyed. So I don't know if I want to be loved by him. Yeah. Well, do you ever miss him as a you know former friend? Um, I feel sad that he did what he did. In other words, for example, he was the absolute guardian of all of the footage. He went and unlawfully sold the footage to HBO and probably seduced mm -hmm. and all those things. I mean, there's proof of what they were selling. Um, this is a person who was the guardian. You know, thousands of people trusted him and were gave permission to be recorded in their journeys in ESP and their classes because they trusted Mark. And then he went and sold it for money and put it out in the world. So when I think of who he was and how he promised, you know, good things and then betrayed hundreds of people and like did bad things for them. Um, and then I see him justifying it and believing he's a hero. I feel, you know, I, I understand him. I know that the thing that Bonnie came and told him really like broke him down the middle and he's like right. enamored with her and all of this. I, I understand why he went and thought, and change his thinking the way he did, but it's unfortunate, you know, it's sad. Mm -hmm. Well, I just think this is interesting to talk about this because when we were talking about the, the source in your courses, you, you, you mentioned the, the compassion exercise of trying to empathize with this person that you perceive as doing something evil. Uh, 
in, in order to, to portray that person better in a performance. And so, you know, one of the things that I noticed about our culture today, and it's probably just an outcome of social media and the internet is that if someone is found to have done something wrong, all of a sudden that person's personal brand becomes the wrong thing that they did. Right. Like, right. Pee Wee Herman could have been given millions of dollars to breast cancer research for decades. But all I know about him is that he got caught beaten off in an adult theater. Right. <laughs> it's the right. one bad thing he did that just like erases everything else about him. And I, I tell I tell myself sometimes when I think about this is that people are more than the worst thing about them or the worst thing that they've done. And so that was sort of why I was trying to kind of give Mark the benefit of the doubt here is if 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 one believes that you know, they've been involved in something that's just astronomically evil. And there is a there is a reasonable argument. I don't know that I agree with it or not, but there is a reasonable argument to to do some bad things in order to correct the the problem, right? It's like the Machiavellian approach, does the end justify the means? So, you know, is it possible that out of a sense of trying to establish justice in this perceived situation? that he could have rationalized doing some of the things that you're talking about for the greater yeah. good of, of bringing this to justice, right? Like it doesn't necessarily he, make him a bad guy that he's doing these things. It, he, he's just, he could just be wrong, right? I think unfortunately people believe on that and some people are aware of it, some people are not. Um, one of the other things that the vow did not disclose is that, you know, and they have Nancy sort of brushing over it, but Sarah, Nipi, and Mark went and committed a crime against Nexium. They they refunded people. They took uh, funds and extracted them from Nexium unlawfully. And there's even not only a police report in Vancouver, but an admission of guilt about it. They committed crimes against Nexium, and the judge protected this record because they're doing the greater good. You know, they're, they're taking down the devil, so the crime has been completely silenced, what they did. Even HBO sort of silenced it. I mean, the same thing that happens with the tampering, you know, I think deep down, people know that the FBI planted the evidence, but the belief, the subconscious belief that people have is, you know, if, if the person is bad enough, then let us cheat on him. No due process, and right. that's what people believe. They don't admit to it, but it's true. There's... Um, um, maybe I'll send it to you, but one of the first uh, episodes of the podcast that Keith uh, recorded from prison, he was actually reading a passage of a book, a conversation between a prosecutor and a defense attorney. And the defense attorney asks the prosecutor, you know, oh, so the prosecutor actually asks the defense attorney, so would you give the devil the benefit of the law? And uh, the defense attorney says, yes, would you not? And the prosecutor says, no, I would cut every law in England to go after the devil, you know? And the defense attorney says, oh, and, you know, when the last law is down and the devil turns around on you, where did you, where would you hide with all the laws being down? And this is something that has happened already in the U.S. You know, even someone like Trump allegedly participated or his administration on 
prosecuting Keith unlawfully. In other words, he was so hated that everyone was like, you know what, forget due process, let's get him. And then the devil is turning around on us, even someone like Trump, you know, we allowed the FBI and federal prosecutors to commit crimes and to plant evidence because the man is so hated, we just want him in jail. And what we have now is the FBI can plant evidence on us. We have a ridiculous RICO status and sex trafficking is basically anything you've ever done with your girlfriend. So we have sacrificed the law in order to go after someone who's very hated. That actually is the devil turning around on us. So this notion that you're, you're absolutely correct, people subconsciously you know, they they think Keith is bad and it doesn't matter what they what it's done to him. It goes. Yeah. So, so sorry to go so long. And so like, no, no, that was a beautiful. That was a fascinating. An- that was a fascinating answer. That was that was great. That was exactly what I wanted to hear hear from you is was something in that in that depth. So. Why do you think it is that because, you know, you mentioned that you went to you went to Albany, you, you know, talked to some of these women that were allegedly involved into us and basically came to the conclusion that it was a sorority and it was okay because it was consensual. Um, and that, you know, even it was even seemed to be helping some of the members. Why is it, do you think that, you know, a handful, one or two, three, I don't know. I actually don't even know the number, but a handful uh, of members of DOS became so vehemently antagonistic toward it. Why does someone like Sarah Edmondson, go on a path to... Um, I think it's different you know. reasons. You know, um, Sarah, from what I know from being friends with them and what's portrayed in the vow, um, it seemed like um, Sarah wanted Nippy's attention. And, you know, it took him months to realize that she had a, she had a brand which tells you about the relationship. Sure. Um, it, a lot of women tell me that she just wanted his attention. I can't really try it on, but it also makes sense. Um, I don't know what her ultimate motivations were to go and lie, but uh, they seem to be on the realm of personal. But after that, you know, you have people being threatened by the prosecution. You know, you, you if you don't say that you were a victim of DAS, then you're a criminal in this other charge. So it quickly evolved into that. You know, these women of DAS, it's a... These are some of the most successful, intelligent, accomplished women. Sarah was successful. Sarah, Allison, successful actresses. There's lawyers from Harvard and all sorts of great things. You know, these were women who were saying, we are going to do this edgy thing so that we can keep our word. Men can do that. There's The world is like that, but women really can't. So we're going to do this edgy thing with this collateral, and we're going to do it, and we're going to brand ourselves. And... You know, I can absolutely see why the world doesn't accept it, but this were like sure, it's shocking to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I don't know if I should even say I would have done it. I would have not done it. It's not up to me. You know, when when Omegas show their brands on the Super Bowl, it's amazing. When a woman shows her brand, she was abused, and it was a man. It's a, it's the infantilization of women that we're dealing with. And, you know, Sarah, when the narrative first came out, she was saying, I was pinned down in Albany and like she was making it sound like she was abused by Keith and branded like a cow. And then 
it ended up that it wasn't like that. It was a weird if you want ceremony amongst women with a cauterizing pen, which is like a tattoo. And, you know, unfortunately, by the time the truth comes out, already there's all these other falsehoods and exaggeration against Keith and the truth becomes difficult. Was Keith even there for the branding ceremonies? There was, he, he was never present? in any branding ceremony, never at all. He was never present or near the locations. The, what the media, this is a good example of many. What the media says versus what it was really so far. You know, even in the trial, if you go look, there's no branding in the, in the in, there's no sex in the trial. Keith has never had, in the trial, there's no accusation of Keith having sex with anyone or being in any branding ceremony or branding anyone. I don't know. The sex trafficking charge is two women going down on each other and Keith watching. You know, the child pornography is a picture that allegedly was taken by him many years ago and it's planted. So Yeah, well I'll say one thing about one thing about pedophiles is they don't just have a handful of pictures. No. The psychological is, you know, profile is, you know, massive collections, organized, labeled. No, I mean when you when you actually catch a real pedophile, they've got a whole catalog. No, this was not that. This was this is a person that he spent twelve years with. And allegedly they're saying, well, he took pictures of her too young. And which is, you know, again, the FBI modified those dates to make it appear that she was 15. That's scientifically proven. It's out there. The best former FBI experts, Alan Dershowitz, Ron Sullivan, everyone who's who knows law or cyber saying that. But people think they know they don't only don't not know that this is one picture of a of a partner of 12 years they think this is someone who's messing with children you know yeah yeah wow so did keith ever actually have the collateral no he never had it you know uh they they show in the vow how he lied to his company saying you know, I'm not involved in DOS. If you if you if you look at what was going on in that moment, you know, it was true that he would let alone having the collateral, he was not involved in DOS. By the time that he made that statement, it was true. And it was a statement that was modified by a lot of lawyers of Nancy and Alice, and it was a complex statement. But when he said, I'm not involved in DOS, it was factually true because he hadn't been involved in it for years. He was involved in its inception. Women came to him and say, you know, we want to have this thing. Can you help us? He was like, okay, I'll be the architect of this house. I'll give you the concepts of this, of how you go. How can I, how I think you could go and create a sorority that would give women discipline. This is what I think you could do. They went, they did the whole thing for years, including the brand, their idea, you know, there's recordings of Keith saying, okay, if you're going to do a brand, then do it like this and like that. But this is women forming a sorority, him giving them audios of how to do it, and then for years not being involved in it at all. And then they're like, were you involved? Yes and no. You know, this is um, this is women doing stuff with concept of a man. That's how Keith created all his companies. Certainly that's how he created the source, a few concepts, and then people went and developed them. Hmm. So did the women know that the brand was was his initials or do you do you not even concede the point? Um, I don't know. What I've heard is that some women were telling the other women and some mm. women didn't. I'm not sure what's true. 
And because it had like a double interpretation where, you know, if you supposedly if you twisted on one hand, it's the elements, earth and wind and things like that. And, and then it also says KR. So I imagine some women weren't and some mm. women were. I mean, you that's not necessarily Keith's you know. fault, though. No, and you know, I talked with him about it and he says, you know, it's it's because I'm controversial because even if they did exactly what they they said they did, even if it was like non-disclosed whose initials it was, but it was Brad Pitt or Abraham Lincoln, it wouldn't be a problem. That makes sense. Let's say they discovered that really it says BP, Brad Pitt, and she didn't know. It wouldn't be a problem. Right. So why do you think it is that the FBI was so uh, enthusiastically going after him? Why, why does the why does the state well, care to have this guy know, locked up? Keith has, Keith has enemies that are media moguls and politicians and billionaires in the U.S. and in Mexico. Their daughters had chosen paths in Keith's companies as opposed to in their companies. So he had bad enemies. And then also... You know, you have the New York Times and all these women and HBO saying this. That you have like all these things being said and these documentaries being done, and the prosecution buys it. And maybe they're colluded with the billionaires and the moguls. We don't know. But you know, once right. they created this big thing, and then they realize there's no proof. And if you analyze the charges, there's none of the elements was met with evidence. Not one of them. And they they find themselves in these situations where they went and they said this was this massive sex cult and there's no sex there's no evidence and all of the co-defendants are already standing to defend uh, themselves together. Well, even if it was what a sex do? cult, a sex cult isn't illegal. Even if it you was be a, in a sex cult, what they were saying was true. And then suddenly, this child porn appears, and everyone mm. please. Yeah, it seems to me like. Um, my my intuition is that it was a it was a trophy case, right? There a lot of law enforcement or or prosecution they just their mouth watered at how good it would be for their career to lock a high profile defendant. There's absolutely uh, that. You know, like you know, Moira is the she's the attorney that put Keith Raniere away, and that's a big deal yeah. professionally. She's you giving know. a talk tomorrow at a university of you know like how how awesome she is. And, you know, she, she colluded, she did perjury. She suborned perjury. She knew about the tampering. She did all sorts of crimes. She knew about it. She's a hero. Yeah. How do you know? Just wait until the evidence comes out fully and the collusion between the prosecution, the agents and the court, the judge, you're going to be, you know, the FBI tampering as historic as it is, as Alan Dershowitz said, it's the tip of the iceberg. Wow. So tell me a little bit about what you know of Keith's situation now in terms of uh, his experience in prison. Well, unfortunately, right now he's being retaliated against ever since the tampering was filed and the agents, the former agents were brought into into record and the advocates started speaking out. He was sent to the shoe. He was hit by another prisoner. That's a special housing unit, by the way. It's basically solitary confinement. Just right. He's been in confinement for many months. And, um, you know, they seem to be treating him 
uh, you know, worse than what you treat. They're definitely treating him worse than the person who punched them because he was punched and sent to the shoe. And then the person who punched him was released from the shoe and he's still in the shoe. They have scrubbed his uh, phone list. You know, myself, I was visiting him regularly every two weeks. And, you know, they've been making up different excuses with Nikki and Sunil and Mark. And they can always sort of fit it into the narrative why they're not allowing him to be seen anymore. They, they sort of make up this weird excuse that sort of has to do with the criminal case or the civil case. Shady. With me, not even that. I'm not in any of the civil or criminal cases. And they're basically saying, you know, because you're a member of Nexium, like a scarlet letter, anti-constitutionally saying, because you are one of 17,000 people who took Nexium courses, you can't see Keith Veneer. He's being treated, you know, like a, a political prisoner, literally. And the more information he puts out there of how much he was railroaded, the more he's retaliated again. So, you know, he's lost weight. His health is obviously not well. Um, he maintains his innocence and his spirit, but it's not healthy. What's done to him is really bad. There's been things that are that have been done to him that are torturous, you know, and you have in the meantime, the prosecutors, you know, uh, trowel saying that the accusations are frivolous. You know, the most renounced, just the most, the most amazing FBI former agent saying that this is the worst tampering they've ever seen. And, and the prosecutor's office calls it frivolous. And in the meantime, the prisoner is being tortured. It's as if this was old Russia. You know, it's worse than North Korea, but we don't know because the, the FBI and the government control the media as well. You know, so thank you for this window. It's, it's incredible that this happens. That part of my motivation is in Mexico, you know, I grew up with no justice system. And I know I don't want that for my children. Trust me, no one wants that for their children. A system where the courts are corrupt means every other industry, any other aspect of society can be corrupted. It's like the bloodstream of a civilization. If the court is corrupted, anything else that wants to be corrupt will be corrupt. I don't think that people have you know, they don't see what it means, what's happening to America. I was fortunate, unfortunate to grow up in a country where we didn't have a justice system to know uh, that this needs to be stopped. Yeah. Wow. It's just like a perfect storm. Of, of it, was a perfect all, storm. it was a perfect storm. So is anybody practicing any of the, the Nexium stuff now? I know that I think technically the federal government owns the intellectual property to all the all the not material writer, not no, necessarily. Nancy gave up uh, first principles, which was one company that owned some of the patents. But really, it's okay to teach Nexium stuff, and we are alive. You know, we are uh, here. Uh, every member of Nexium has. Uh, you know, we're all working uh, in free Claire and Keith, and we don't have a lot of people, a lot of resources. So, I mean, we are alive, but we. Um, we mean to continue what we did, but right now all of the resources have been uh, devoted to help our friends who have been wrongfully imprisoned. Do you think Nancy's really flipped or do you think that she's just trying to recover her credibility? Um, she's trying to save face. 
And this is something that we know. You know, she knows she didn't commit a crime. She has, of course, you know, once the government convinces you that you're a criminal, it's in your best interest to change your mind about who Keith was. But she knows she didn't commit a crime. She knows she pled to try to save face, which didn't really work. But, um, you know, she knows she's innocent. And it's unfortunate that she portrayed herself in HBO as someone who's not when she knows she is. So what do you think the outcome is going to be ultimately as a human being? in the context of all human history that you're familiar with, life experience that you've had, where, where do you think this is going to be in 2032? I hope, I hope that this reminds people that, uh, you know, just like Joseph Salam, Dr. Salam said that none of us are safe, that if this can happen to an educated white man with no sex mm. on the whole trial, it can happen to anyone. You know, I hope people realize that uh, society has become draconian, as Ron Sullivan says, and we have uh, a justice system that punishes you for prejudice. And that I hope that the outcome is that we can bring enough attention to this so that we can hold these agents accountable. Because this is not going to go away. We are going to hold these agents and these prosecutors accountable. Um, if that happens, then everyone would learn that you can't do that, that we, the people, police the police, that we investigate the investigators, prosecute the prosecutors and judge the judges. You know, people have forgotten it, but that is our citizen's job. And the hope is that the sacrifice of our friends, of the people of Nexium, reminds the people that that's what we need to do, that when there's an injustice, we go against it and we fix it. So, I mean... Because what's the other outcome? Maybe it'll be swept under the rug and, you know, we'll put a standard where like prosecutors can lie and judges can be corrupt or inept and the FBI can plant child porn and kidnap an American citizen with a blue passport in Mexico. The standard, if we don't do anything about this, the standard that was set is dangerous. So my hope is that the end result is that we, I see it as, you know, day or night, black or white. Either we change the justice system with this as a precedent, or we set a draconian 1984 type of totalitarian regime that nobody wants. Hmm. Sorry, maybe I'm too black and white. No, no, I, I totally appreciate your um, your thoughts and response. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on my podcast and, and tell the world your side of the story. I know it's an incredibly difficult thing for uh for you it's a it's a sensitive topic there's there's a lot of life history i can't imagine what it would feel like to have your life pulled out beneath you from beneath you like a rug and then have to go back and justify you know every inch of that rug i i can't imagine if i had to make a case for you know the last 10 years of my life for the last 15 years of my life so you know my, you my heart is with you me. there and yeah. thank you for saying that, you know, um, part of me feels very grateful. I'm very purposeful. I guess like most uh, people, or at least, uh, you know, people I know, we all want to do something great. When we look back and we're like, oh, the forefathers, like, I wish I was in those great times. So for whatever reason, I'm in front of a great opportunity to change something great. And I'm grateful for it. You're right. It's hard, but... Um, I think I make make the best out of it, and I'm lucky to have 
a family that supports me, a wife that supports me, and you know, friends that support me. So um, I think that I see what I do as purposeful. But yes, it's been incredibly hard. People lost their livelihoods, their their medical licenses. Innocent people are in jail. One of them, Keith, you know, at risk of being killed because he's mislabeled as a pedophile. So it has been incredibly hard, but um, also purposeful. So, and thank you, and thank you for the space. I, I, I truly believe that with it's with these people like you that have a large amount of followers who have podcasts that that the truth is going to come out. The mass media, we you know, we've reached out to all of them, all of the mass media, the New York Times, the MSNBC, the CNN, Fox. They all came to our press conference. They've all they all know the FBI planned the child porn. They're just not covering it. So thank you for doing it and being brave like that. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And um, if you ever want to come back on again, there is a standing invitation. You're always welcome to come. Okay. Thank you. I will. You know, any window that we have and, um, you know, let's make these things viral so that we, the people, can win. Absolutely. Take care, man. All right. Thank you, Chase. Have a good night. You're welcome. Bye-bye.